your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back into our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now here is the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome everybody. Okay, today we're going to be talking about paraphilias, which is uh, freaky sexual things that people do. And, you know, it's interesting that as people get stressed out in life, they tend to go back to things that they are comfortable with. Um, and they don't diversify from it. These things, these paraphilias become sexual obsessions for people. And, and the term paraphilia, basically, it refers to really intense sexual attraction to any objects or people outside of genital stimulation with consenting adult partners. So a, a paraphilia is considered a disorder when the paraphilia is causing distress or threatens to harm someone else. And so, you know, it's a condition in which a person's sexual arousal and gratification depend on fantasizing about and engaging in sexual behavior that is not typical and sometimes extreme. And the paraphilia can revolve around an object, uh, you know, children, animals, underwear, or around an act like inflicting pain or exposing a person's self. But mostly paraphilias are are more common in men than in women. And the focus of a paraphilia is usually very specific and unchanging with that individual. And uh, so it, it is distinguished by a preoccupation with an object or a behavior to the point of being dependent on that object or behavior for sexual gratification. And an object, once again, can include a person. They become an object for the paraphilia. And and some of these paraphilias include like sexual behaviors that society views as really distasteful or unusual or abnormal. But the most common ones is the sexual focus on children, which is a pedophilia. And then there's exhibitionism which is exposure of a genital, somebody's genitals to strangers. Then there's voyeurism, like observing private activities of unaware victims. Then there's frauderism, that's touching or rubbing against non-consenting person. And then there's fetishism, uh, the use of inanimate objects. And then there's uh, sexual masochism. It, that means they like being humiliated or, or forced to suffer. And then there's sexual sadism, which is inflicting humiliation or suffering. And then there's also the transvestic disorder, which is sexually aroused cross-dressing. Not as common, but it is seen, and it grow, it's growing in popularity out there. Some of these behaviors are illegal. And those who are under treatment for para, uh, paraphilic disorders often encountered legal situations surrounding their behavior, and that's what brings them to therapy. A lot of them are court-ordered. The other thing is there's also the category called other uh, specified paraphilic disorder to cover paraphilias that are are not uh, uh, falling into already named diagnosis, such as involving dead people or urine or feces, enemas, obscene phone calls. You know, the symptoms, although many paraphilias uh, seem foreign or extreme, they're easier to understand if one thinks of those behaviors that 
in, in less extreme versions are, are quite common. For instance, having a partner talk dirty may be arousing for some people. But when talking dirty is the only way that sexual arousal or satisfaction can occur, it, it, it's considered a paraphilia. So others want to be like bitten or spanked or become aroused by watching their partner or viewing a nude person or watching sexually explicit videos that can be arousing for, for most people. But paraphilias are magnified to the point of psychological dependence on those particular acts. You know, it's unclear what causes a paraphilic disorder to develop, but psychoanalysts theorize that an individual with a paraphilia is repeating or reverting to a sexual habit that arose early in life. So oftentimes these things come from our childhood behaviors. And, and then behaviorists also look at paraphilias as uh, through a process of conditioning, like non-sexual objects become sexually arousing if they're repeatedly associated with a pleasurable activity or particular sex acts such as peeing or exhibiting or bestiality that, that provide interesting, intense erotic pleasure can lead a person to prefer that behavior. But in some cases, there seems to be a predisposing factor such as the difficulty of forming person-to-person relationships. And that is the biggest deal about paraphilia. They, they objectize sex. They turn uh, people into objects. So it's no longer about the person they're with. It's about the addiction they have to a sexual behavior. You know, so if you look at uh, behavioral learning, uh, it suggests that, that a child who is a victim or of an observer of inappropriate sexual behavior, they learn to imita- uh, imita- imitate that behavior, and then they're later reinforced for that behavior. And then there's also uh, a model that suggests that these individuals are deprived of normal sexual contacts. And so they seek gratification through less socially acceptable means, you know? And and then if you look from another focus, the relation between hormones, behavior, and central nervous system with a particular interest in the role of aggression and male sexual hormones. So it could be all of the above. It could be any of the above. No uh, research has really defined exactly what it's all about. And the treatment approaches come all over the board. Hypnosis, psychoanalysts, behavioral therapy. And then there's also uh, uh, drugs with the lower testosterone levels, and they've temporarily they've temporarily been used to, in conjunction with the treatment, and it lowers the sex drive in the males, and it reduces the frequency of uh, men, mental imagery of sexual arousing scenes, and so it allows the concentration on counseling without a strong distraction from the urges, and so you know. Medication, uh, counseling, there's all kinds of things that have gone into this treatment modality, but nothing has really, really, truly uh, been found to absolutely work. Um, usually there's some what's called cognitive restructuring, there's social skills training, there's alternate behaviors that they may uh, take that are more appropriate. But usually, usually the people that are paraphilias, once again, they tend to come to therapy because they've been ordered by an illegal activity that has been witnessed or somebody who has caught them and that they respect and love. Um, And and so basically what happens is they end up coming kind of non-voluntarily. And so it takes a lot of time to work with these kind of people because their obsession is so strong on these sexual acts. So let's talk about the pedophilia. That's the biggest one and that's the most dangerous one. And hopefully 
um, you know, you look around and you look online for people that have been arrested for sexual contact with kids uh, because there are uh, people on webs. There's websites that actually can tell you where they live because they, they can no longer just hide in the bushes. You know, pedophilia is considered a, a, a paraphilia and in, in it's, it's a condition in which a person's sexual arousal and gratification depends on fantasizing about and engaging in sexual behavior that is very uh, extreme. And the pedophilia is defined as a fantasy or, or a or a act of sexual activity with children who are generally age 13 years or younger. And so uh, they're usually men, and they can be attracted to either both or both sexes. But how well they relate to adults is often uh, opposite, and it often varies. But this disorder, pedophilia, can be diagnosed in people who are willing to disclose the paraphilia as well as in people who deny any sexual attraction to children despite objective evidence that they have done uh, sexual acts or fantasized in sexual acts with children. And for the condition to be diagnosed, an individual must either act on their sexual urges or experience significant distress as a result of those fantasies and those urges. And, and so without those criteria that the person is not diagnosed with a uh, pedophilic sexual orientation or a pedophilia disorder. But, uh, you know, it's huge and it's unknown how popular or how much prevalence there is in society of these folks. But the deal is a lot of the people that are pedophilias uh, that experience that have been molested in their own childhood, have had sexual acts um, on them in childhood. And basically what happens is as they're adults, they try to figure out what happened to them. And by trying to figure out what happened to them, uh, they basically go and do it and damage poor children who have no idea what they're getting into. An estimated 20%, and this is an estimate, 20% of American children have been select, sexually molested, making f- uh, pedophilia the most common uh, paraphilia. And these uh, offenders are usually, sadly, family members, relatives, or friends, neighbors, uh and, and the activities may vary, and they may include just looking at the child or undressing or touching the child. However, the acts often involve oral sex or touching of genitals of the child or the offender. And so studies suggest that children who feel uncared for or lonely may be at higher risk of sexual abuse. And so this, this diagnosis is very dangerous because it really tears a, a child up. They're very confused by what happens to them. And oftentimes they freeze their developmental uh, emotions into the state of childhood where they were actually molested because it, they just don't understand it. And they always they go into life feeling as if they're always a victim of something because of that molestation. They feel that their life is out of their control because in their childhood there was an involuntary activity that took place. And so that trauma is very hard to resolve in people, but it can be done. It can absolutely be done in therapy. Reoccurrent, intense fantasies, urges, or behaviors involving sexual activity with a child uh, is is one of the criteria, and it has to go on for at least six months. 
and also some of the symptoms. Uh, these sexual urges have been acted on or caused uh, significant distress or impaired social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. The person has to be at least 16 and at least five years older than the child in the first category. However, this does not include an individual of late adolescence involved in ongoing sexual relationship with a 12 or 13-year-old. Additionally, the diagnosis of pedophilic disorder should should specify whether the individual is exclusively attracted to children or or not, or the gender that the individual is attracted to, and whether the sexual urges are limited to incest. You know, there are a, a lot of difficulties with the diagnosis of pedophilia. People who have this condition, they rarely seek help voluntarily. They're, they feel guilt and shame. Counseling and treatment are often a result of a court order, once again. Interviews, surveillance, internet records have to be obtained through criminal investigation. That can be helpful in bringing the diagnosis forward. But but uh, extensive use of child pornography is a useful uh, diagnostic indicator of a, a pedophilic disorder. A- additionally, genital sexual arousal can be measured in a laboratory setting through sexual stimulus uh, based on the relative change in, in the person's sexual response. But they there as a group. You know, paraphilias have a high rate of comorbidity with one uh, or with another, and they are equally high rates of anxiety and comorbidity. Mean, it means it walks with you; it's, it accompanies you as a person. And so, it also oftentimes these folks have uh, 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 anxiety, depression, mood disorders, substance abuse disorders, and the causes. Other than the fact that they're a paraphilia, there's some evidence that pedophilia may run in families, though it's unclear that it stems from genetics or learned behavior. Other other factors such as abnormalities in sexual hormones, brain chemical, uh, that, that's been pros- proven to be some factors in the develop of pedophilia. And also, uh, usually a history of childhood sexual abuse is the, a potential factor. And I would say that is the highest factor that causes pedophilias to happen. You know, um, treatments includes medication, uh, intensity of sex drive. So you have to use uh, a lot of uh, sensomotor type of uh of activities, you've got to use a lot of behavioral type of therapy to deal with people like that, and and you have to create awareness where they're able to manage their own emotions, manage their impulses to keep themselves out of uh, out of trouble. But the the prognosis is difficult to determine in therapy, and uh, you know these long-standing sexual fantasies about children can be very difficult to change, and so you know a therapist can attempt. To reduce the intensity of the fantasies and the coping strategies, but the individual may be entrenched in that idea that they continue to have, and it may continue to roll, you know, continue to be underneath even their conscious efforts to stop the behavior. So, you know, it's 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 hard to stop these folks, and and but you can, you can if they want to be, if they want to be healed. They have to want it, and that's the biggest deal about it. And, and you know, many of them are, are embarrassed and ashamed, and they, they don't even want to talk to the extent of how much uh, their paraphilia is, their, their, their uh, pedophilia is. And, you know, once again, if they were more empathetic, if they think more about the damage it can do to a child, then maybe, maybe from that angle, it's possible that the person may begin to be more conscious and aware and limit or stop that behavior. Absolutely. Many of these folks are in prison. And that's the sad truth. 
when they form this kind of attraction, they often end up in jail or prison repeatedly. And that's the big deal. All right, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about exhibitionism, voyeurism, frauderism, and all kinds of other isms. Come back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. If you are ready to be inspired, energized, and edutained, you've come to the right place with our two life-changing programs at BeTheStarYouAreRadio.com. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Listen for our lifestyle show, Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with our host, Cynthia Bryan. Then on Sundays at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, Teens Talk and the World Listens on Express Yourself Teen Radio. Play with us at Be the Star You Are Radio. And the Voice America Empowerment Channel. How do you define work? Is it that mundane Monday through Friday place that seems to be sucking a third of your life out of you? Or have you made it a place of personal fulfillment, achievement, and purpose? If you are looking to make your work life the latter, tune in to Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. There are all kinds of inspiring work-life stories told by people who have made work something to look forward to every day. Working on Purpose can be heard every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. Please join Dr. Sarah, a.k.a. Dr. Red, on an amazing journey of love, soul, abundance, compassion, and authenticity. Dr. Red is a well-renowned healer, hypnotherapist, author, and speaker who has overcome personal challenges to emerge stronger than ever before to reach out to you and heal you emotionally, mentally, and spiritually for the most informative and enriching experience filled with unbridled laughter and insights on life, health, culture, and society. Tune in to Dr. Red's. Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you satisfied with your life? Do you know that more should be possible? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the creators of Access, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane here. Our program offers pragmatic tools to change things in your life that you haven't been able to change until now. What if all of life could come to you with ease, joy, and glory? 
Tune in to Access Consciousness Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, we're talking, it is a dark, this is a dark topic, but because we're talking about uh, a pair of paraphilias, and paraphilias can be very, very uh, dark because these people are in a dark place. And so they have a lot of trouble with their obsessions on sexual arousal of objects or people or things and uh, they, their behaviors are just unbelievable and they, they just go beyond the norm. Um, you know, exhibitionism is a paraphilia and, and it is a condition by the urge or the fantasy or the behavior of exposing a person's genitals to non-consenting people, particularly strangers. I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but I've had this happen when I was a child. It was the weirdest thing I ever dealt with in my life. I mean, back in the 70s, actually, it was interesting that, that people got off on being a streaker. And so that means they would take their clothes off and go to like a stadium and just run naked through the through the stadium. I mean, this is crazy that people did that. Um, but, you know, they it, it became an obsession for people. So all these people that were exhibitionists were like given a title to go out and run naked wherever on the beach or wherever and expose themselves to all kinds of people. I mean, it's stuff that you don't you don't necessarily want to see this, <laughs> you know, Um you know, it, it also, the prevalence of it is unknown, but it's thought to be approximately 2 to 4% of the male population. It's less common in females, although, uh, you know, there are estimates, but they are not unknown. But it's definitely under 1% of women have this exhibitionistic urge. Um, you know, maybe they do have the urge in the way they dress, but they're not walking around naked or exposing themselves to people that don't know them. So over a period of at least six months, you know, a person, if they're going to be diagnosed with exhibitionism, they, they have to have this recurrent, intense sexual arousal, fantasies, behaviors, or urges involving exposing their genitals to unsuspecting people. And, and um, usually... That unconsenting person, the urges or fantasies are, are cause a marked distress or interpersonal difficulty in the workplace or in the everyday social situations for this person because they have this constant urge. And, and it usually occurs uh, sometimes late in adolescence or early adulthood, similar to other sexual preferences. But exhibitionist uh, sexual preferences and behavior may lessen as people get older. But the risk factors for the development of, of this in males, including antisocial personality disorder, alcohol abuse, an interest in pedophilia, other factors that may be associated with exhibitionism include sexual and emotional abuse during childhood and also sexual preoccupation in childhood. So these people have a lot of, usually a lot of exposure to sex in their childhood. 
and and uh, there's also things that have taken place with them in childhood. But that urge uh, to see a non-consenting person, you have to wonder why why do they do that? Why do they want an unconsenting person seeing them naked? And the deal is, they're hoping to get a reaction. I don't know what reaction they're hoping for. It may be the surprise. It may be the laugh. It may be the the maybe the the, the scream and run. It, I don't know what it is, but they love the reaction. That's what they're going for, and, and they do not seek treatment on their own most of the time, until they are caught or they're required by the authorities. So so once again, as a paraphilia. These are the same type of things. They, they basically end up in jail. They end up in a, in a situation, a legal situation, and uh, they've denied it their whole life, and they even deny the, the proof, and they, then they end up in therapy. You know, there are some uh, uh, hormone uh, therapies that take place medically. Also, uh, it's all about decreasing desire. But that doesn't stop the thoughts. And so the thoughts have to be something that is dealt with oftentimes in therapy. And that's a very difficult challenge. And it also requires a very, very good therapist that actually has learned to treat this kind of the behavior. You know, there's also voyeurism. And it's one of the of several uh, uh, psychiatric disorders that fall into the paraphilia category. But uh, it, it, this... this uh, preferal interest of a voyeurist uh, becomes sexually aroused by intentionally spying on unsuspecting people people who are naked, getting dressed, participating in sexual activities. In addition, they like observing the private acts directly, and the voyeurs may record them for later use and and inadvertently coming across and viewing someone in such a compromising position is not a disorder, but voyeurs are more commonly called peeping peeping toms because they tend to peer through peepholes and open windows and watch their targets with aid of objects or cameras or, or recording devices or binoculars or audio mirrors, whatever they use. I mean, they, they're, 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 hiding their behavior, but they're loving to watch what people are doing and how they're doing that, especially with sexual acts and naked um, activities. And so, you know, voyeuristic disorder, they must have that sexual arousal for at least, once again, six months. And uh, they, they, uh, they enjoy the fantasy of watching unsuspecting person who's naked, partially disrobed, sexually active. And, and so, there's also a subset of watching people defecate or eavesdropping and a highly erotic conversations. And so the viewer is likely to masturbate or have sexual fantasies while they're watching someone, uh, but they're not interested in having sex with the observed person. And so these behaviors uh, uh, must be the cause of a lot of distress and dysfunction in their lives. And males are more likely to engage in voyeuristic acts than females. Younger voyeurs are rarely arrested, but adult voyeurism is a criminal act. So, you know, kids are often looking through people's windows. They do that. And do, can they be called, the police be called on them? Absolutely. Can they be setting up cameras? Can they do the audio recordings? They do all that, but they oftentimes don't get in as much trouble as the adults do. No specific cause has been determined for a voyeurist. However, there are factors that tend to coincide uh, coincide with a person becoming a voyeur, including usually, once again, guess again, sexual abuse, being hypersexualized, uh, being uh, substance abuse, 
being molested as a child. Many people have voyeuristic tendencies but are afraid to admit it and get caught. And so the, the voyeuristic behavior may stem from an accidental sighting of someone who is naked or disrobing or participating in sexual activity or, or continued viewing uh, then reinforces and perpetuates the behavior to the point where it goes beyond what is considered culturally acceptable or normal. It becomes pathological. So um, once again, these people don't like to admit they don't get treatment until they're usually put up against a wall. But usually psychotherapy, support groups, medication, all those things uh, can help. But the earlier you get to it, the, the quicker you can uh, extinguish some of this behavior. You know, it, it's uh, a sad thing that people do form obsessions. And people that have, uh, let's say, obsessive compulsive disorder uh, oftentimes can fall into these categories too, where their obsessions become this, this type of behavior. And so... We have to look at all the diversity uh, that, that takes place in a paraphilia. There's, there's another one that's interesting, and that's called frauderism. Now, it's the act of touching or rubbing a person's genitals up against another person in a sexual manner without their consent. And so, you know, they, 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 they have to do this to derive sexual pleasure or reach an orgasm. So those who practice frauderism enjoy experiencing a private sexual experience in a public setting. And so it's one of several criminal uh, paraphilias. It's a sexual arousal disorder. And it, it can occur at any age. And the problem is it's most often seen in young, seemingly shy males between the ages of 15 and 25. But it's also been seen in older, reserved, socially withdrawn men. So frauderism is thought to be rare among females. But, but it involves, once again, intense fantasies, urges, keen sexual attraction and arousal centering on the act of touching an unsuspecting and non-consenting person's breasts, their legs, their buttocks, their genitals, or rubbing their own pelvic area or erect penis against the person, generally from behind. And, and that behavior is repetitive, and it usually occurs in crowded places such as trains, buses, elevators, even crowded streets. And aside from being a criminal activity because it is a form of non-consensual sexual act, frauderism is diagnosed as a mental health disorder when the type of behavior continues for more than six months or if the fantasies and urge, urges cause significant distress or dysfunction in personal relationships and daily activities. And, you know, it's really hard for the person, the victim, because the victim is like having to call out this person in public what they're doing. And if they're a shy person themselves, they're going to have a hard time with that. But the deal is these people have to be stopped. That is a violation. Once again, it's a violation and they have to be stopped. A lot of uh, causes uh, from them is centered on social issues as a result of a lack of consenting partners or others are centered on the inability to control their sex drive. But the, the, the root cause is unknown. But the risk factors are known. And that's usually a preoccupation with sex or hypersexuality, such as unusual frequent or intense sexual urges. Uh, you know, there's a lot of coexisting conditions that includes having a, 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 a non-sexual antisocial personality or a conduct disorder where in late childhood or middle childhood, uh, you become violating other people. 
uh, depression, anxiety, substance disorders, brain injury, a history of sexual abuse may play a big role in frauderism, especially when signs of the disorder appear in an early age. Once again, usually frauderists are are uh, are, are are people uh, who are introverted. They're not extroverted. And so they don't have a means, a learned and emotional means to express their sexuality. So they find hidden ways to do that and oftentimes in public. Unfortunately, for, for uh, these people, once again, don't pursue treatment. They end up in court. They end up in a situation, airplanes, whatever, you know, and, and then they, they uh, are end up having to be caught. Uh, usually they'll deny, deny, deny. And then they have to uh, be dealt with. But once again, a paraphilia like this, like frauderism, goes back to the same old stuff that we've been talking about. You have to do medications. You got to do behavioral. Got to do cognitive therapy. All about releasing or getting those urges down, and then getting to a place where they can take control of their life, take control of their behavior, and take responsibility for stopping it. Because this kind of stuff is is embarrassing and damaging to people. Nobody wants to be touched uh, just by somebody they don't even know. I mean, that's that's not what it's about. You know, that's not what life's about. It, th- these folks have to learn a different way to go. Now we're going to talk about fetishism. Now, this is an intense attraction to objects or body parts, not traditionally viewed as sexual, coupled with uh, clinically significant distress. Once again, the term fetishism was coined in the 1800s. It originates from a Portuguese word called fetico, which means obsessive fascination, or, or it might be fetico. Um, there's a degree of of, of uh, fetishic arousal in most normal people who find particular body features attractive. However, fetishes, uh, fetishes uh, and that arousal that comes from them is considered a problem, once again, when it interferes with life. The, this disorder is a condition in which there's persistent and repetitive use of dependence on non-living objects, undergarments, or a high-heeled shoe, or a uh, highly specific focus on a body part, typically non-genital, uh, to reach sexual arousal. And only through the use of the object or the body part can the individual obtain sexual gratification. So this uh, fetish, uh, fetishism uh, disorder is only used if there's accompanying personal distress or impairment in social, occupational, other areas of functioning in, in a person's life. But people who identify with that, uh, with um practitioners that are able to help them do not uh, usually uh, report uh, the impairment. What I'm trying to say is that the the fetish person usually is not going to come through and report what's going on. And the people who treat these disorders, it's a highly specialized, uh, once again, because they don't take accountability most of the time. But it's a very intense type of therapy where you have to desensitize that person and oftentimes, once again, medications involved. But, you know, common fetish objects include uh, uh, footwear, gloves, rubber articles, leather clothing, body parts uh, associated. Usually it's the feet, the toes, the hair. And it's, it's common for the fetish to include inanimate objects or body parts such as dirty socks and feet. 
And for some, merely a picture of the fetish object may cause arousal. You know, those most prefer to, or require the actual object, but some people can, can get it off on a picture. And they usually hold a, hold or rub or taste or smell the fetish object for sexual gratification. And, and then they often will ask their partner to wear the object during uh, sexual encounters. And so... You know, it, it's uh, these objects may not be limited to articles of clothing used in cross-dressing, such as the transvestic disorder, but or or uh, you know vibrators or dildos. It, it's not usually that. It's more common that this occurs once again in males, and it falls under the category once again of paraphilia. All right, come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about fetishism. Then we're going to move on into other fetishes that are even more complex. Come back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. We all experience grief and loss. It's not something most people like to talk about, but these topics do need to be discussed. On Let's Talk About Grief, host Addie Anderson speaks to both professionals and individuals about grief, death, and personal loss. You'll hear the important topics, the personal and professional outlooks, and learn how to prepare yourself and loved ones when the need arises. Listen Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, we're talking about fetishism as a disorder. And uh, usually uh, people form uh, fetishes and media fetishes. And in a form fetish, the, the object is a shape is important, such as a high-heeled shoe. In a media fetish, the material of the object is important, such as silk or leather. 
you know, an inanimate object uh, fetishes often uh, collect the object of their favor. And in some cases, the fetishism is severe enough to inspire the, the fetish to acquire objects of their desire through theft and assault. And so male fetishes uh, may be unable to get erections without the presence of these objects. So they become dependent on that particular type of fetish. And there's all kinds of different fetishes out there. You know, common types of a fetish disorder is like an amputee fetishism or a breast fetishism or a corset fetishism. That's tight lacing thing around your stomach. A diaper fetishism, a foot or a food or a furry, and that's called tunophilia, a glove fetishism, leather fetishism, uh, medical, pregnancy, rubber, boots, spandex, stockings, swim caps, belly button fetishes. You know, it's just amazing that how complex all this stuff does, but these are in with with a, with a person with the paraphilia like fetishism these are these inanimate objects become sexual sexually arousing to these folks and so obviously in therapy when you're dealing with somebody with the fetishism you really have to look at how to treat them and that's called object relations object relations is how a person relates to an object so you as we know when we're children we develop a fetish basically about our, our maybe a blanket or a, or, a, or a stuffed animal or something like that. So we, we have that instinct, and it's a very primitive instinct at a very, very young age. Unfortunately, it converts sometimes into a fetish uh, of an object that becomes sexual. Somehow it gets tied into a sexual uh, ideal. You know, um, they usually begin in puberty. But the fetishes can develop prior to adolescence, um, and there, there's really no cause. They, people have all kinds of theories, but it's usually early childhood experiences in which the object was associated with a particularly powerful form of sexual arousal or gratification. Um, there's also learning theorists that focus on later childhood and adolescence as a conditioning associated with their masturbation activity. So, um, you know, there's, there's just all kinds of ways to go about it. Um, Treatments of this, once again, is, is, is going to call for medical. It's going to call for antidepressants. Uh, it's that compulsive thinking that's, that's associated to this that you have to treat. Cognitive behavioral therapy, meaning thought-based uh, therapy, uh, is, is part of it. But the whole deal is the person has to want to stop. And you know what's strange is a lot of the people that have these object fetishes, uh, people know about them. They've they've uh, they've figured it out uh, as they carry it later on in life. It's really hard because they have evidence. There's evidence usually of that person having that type of obsession, whether it's gloves or, you know, um, if, if for women, I think they have fetish. It's not sexual, but a fetish is on shoes. <laughs> so maybe it's sexual. You never know. <laughs> but, you know, there, there, there are fetishes that are non-sexual. Um, but usually these kind of paraphilias these it, it involve a sexual activity that the person has to have these objects in order to perform sex. And so there's a lot of reconditioning that has to take place with these type of people. Now let's go into a little bit more complicated, the sexual masochism. Now, what is that? Well, someone who's sexually aroused to being bound, beaten, or otherwise being made to suffer pain, humiliation, 
And it, the desire can cause a huge amount of distress, but the, se- the sexual masochism falls under the psychiatric sexual disorders category of pedophilia. And, and so uh, it's a re- reoccurrent, intense, sexual arousing fantasies, urges, behaviors that are distressing or disabling, and they have the potential to cause harm to a person or other people. But the sadomasochist refers to an engaging in or a frequent fantasizing about being beaten or bound or humiliated, otherwise being made to suffer, resulting in sexual satisfaction. So people with this sexual preference also report psychological and social problems as a result. So that means that their whole life uh, centers around this sexual masochism idea of putting themselves in a one-down position in the sexual thing to the point that they're, they're considered an object. They want to be an object. They want to be used in that in that sexual uh, category anxiety guilt shame obsessive thoughts about engaging in sexual masochism is usually a big part of this uh, um, sexual masochism and also while some people engage in a practice with partners others prefer to restrict their breathing while they're alone or an accidental death may happen as a result so basically they suffocate themselves they you know a lot of these people feel uh, you know I, I don't know if you understand this but uh, orgasm when people are having an orgasm they hold their breath they're holding their breath and, and so if you want to elongate an orgasm or prevent yourself from having an orgasm, you need to breathe um, during sex because the, the orgasm itself is triggered by the holding of the breath. And so that's why the, a lot of these folks like to be strangled. And, and that's a very strange, strange thing, but that's what people do. And it's evident in usually our early childhood. Sometimes it begins with uh, play during childhood that turns into a fantasy life. And so it's where one uh, is is the stronger and the other is the weaker. And also the, the interesting thing about se- uh, sexual masochism is oftentimes uh, men, both men and women, uh, participate in this type of paraphilia uh, more equally. Now, I'm not saying that men don't more often, but men and women both participate usually uh, uh, more statistically in this type of a situation. There, th- there's no theory to the root of it, but some theories have attempted to explain uh, in general uh, that they they basically falls back to all paraphilias, that the fantasies are suppressed, they become stronger uh, as they're forbidden, and when they're finally acted on a person's in a state of, of, of a lot of distress and a lot of arousal, and so they try to associate that behavior with someone or something. And so they basically throw themselves into a situation or a scenario where they role play uh, with another person who may or may not want to participate. Usually, they're looking for the sexual sadist, which is the next topic we're going to talk about after this one. You know, uh, sadomasochistic behaviors can be a form of escape through acting out fantasies. The people have to feel new and different. And and so some of the theories stem from uh, the psychoanalytic camp and they suggest that childhood trauma, for example, sexual abuse or significant childhood experiences can manifest this type of disorder and it just never goes away. And, And so, you know, a lot of people fantasize about things that happened in their childhood sexually when they've explored. And so as adults, they, they tend to, to uh, uh, obsess on this. And so 
Aversion therapy is one of the biggest therapies that we use. Also, uh, desensitization techniques and and, uh, all kinds of medications have also been practiced and used to try to help people with this particular disorder. Now, sexual sadism is one of the most, uh, one of uh, several psychiatric sexual disorders. And and, uh, this refers to sexual interests or preferences or fantasies or urges, behaviors that are outside the norm. And they're usually considered symptoms of of a, a disorder if they're acted out in ways that have potential cause of distress to one person or to a person or the person that has it. Sexual sadism is basically causing pain. It's humiliation. It's fear and and some form of physical or mental harm to another person to achieve sexual gratification. So sadistic acts, including restraint with ropes or chains or handcuffs, imprisonment, biting, spanking, whipping, and beating, You know, if a person has a sadistic sexual interest that causes no distress or dysfunction or harm to considering other people, then that's not a that's not the behavior. But when someone repeatedly at least three times practices sadistic sexual acts without consent from other partners uh, or, or when sadistic fantasies or behaviors cause social or professional or functional problems, the sexual sadism may be diagnosed. But usually extreme sexual sadism can be criminal, and it usually will lead to serious harm or even death of another person. So, you know, look at the symptoms. You know, this disorder, uh, a person has to experience persistent, intense sexual arousal from a causing or fantasizing about physical or mental suffering in another person with or without their consent. And so they, they, they have to, once again, it's six months. And usually these people come from what's called an antisocial personality disorder, poor impulse control, dishonesty, lack of empathy, lack of remorse. And usually it can be especially dangerous and difficult to treat. You know, um, there's no specific causes. Once again, and uh, that escapism is a big deal for these folks. The feeling of power for someone who normally feels powerless in day-to-day life, a release of their sexual suppressed fantasies, progressive acting out of sexual fantasies over time. And so it builds itself and reinforces itself the more that they pour energy into this type of behavior till it becomes who they are. And so sadly, you know, this kind of thing is very difficult to treat because usually these people don't come to therapy until a criminal activity has been uh, brought upon them. And, and, And then they are faced with what they have done and now they have to deal with it. Okay, now we're cost, uh, talking about transvestic disorder, and this is uh, one of uh, another paraphilia that that has sexual interests, preferences, fantasies outside the norm. The, this behavior is basically cross-dressing or dressing in the clothes of the opposite gender. So to become sexually aroused, that person will wear, let's say, a woman's underwear, or become. Uh, when with they they usually are suffering anxiety, uh, depression, guilt, shame because of their urge towards cross-dressing. But the feelings are usually a result of uh, partner disapproval of their own concern about negative social or professional ramifications. So cross-dressing is not is most common in men, but occurs in both males and females, and it often starts in childhood or adolescence. And cross-dressing may include wearing only a single article of clothing typically associated with the opposite gender or a complete outfit along with hair and makeup. 
But most people who cross-dress are heterosexual. And to be diagnosed with transvestic disorder, a person must experience persistent and intense sexual arousal from fantasizing about or acting on the urges to wear one or more pieces of clothing normally worn by the opposite gender. And so these fantasies or behaviors must have been present once again for at least six months and cause a lot of distress. And um, it's very distinct from what's called gender dysphoria. So we're not talking about transvestites or people that are, are unsure of their sexuality. We're talking about a person that has a particular sexual interest in wearing uh, clothing uh, of the opposite sex. And so, you know, if you look at it, childhood is a big uh, part of it. Uh, the cross-dressing causes excitement, which after puberty becomes sexual excitement. So as a person gets older, the behavior is repeated, it's reinforced. The desire to cross-dress may become stronger as the gratification uh, diminishes. And so cross-dressing in and itself is not a disorder. It, so it doesn't not generally require treatment. But cross-dressers are sometimes referred to therapy by the court system or brought to therapy by a parent or a partner or a spouse. Some cross-dressers seek therapy themselves for other reasons, such as substance abuse, depression, dysphoria. Uh, they're distressed about their urges. Um, you know, a lot of these people, you'll find out they're buying uh, dirty underwear of the opposite sex, you know, and uh, paying for it on things like Craigslist and stuff like that. All right. We've talked about uh, paraphilias, and there's so many of them, and it's so complex. But one of the things that we've really discussed is most important is oftentimes this stuff comes from childhood. Oftentimes, it's not understood, and oftentimes, a person's confused about it, and oftentimes, they have uh, formed an obsession in a sexual way because they are inhibited, they're shy, they're not usually people that are just out there uh, making big you know, Broadway production about themselves. These are usually people that are more quiet and, and have poor social skills. All right. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd love to hear from you. DRGBMFT at SBCGlobal.net. If you're interested, I'm available for electronic and in-person counseling, speaking, teaching. Now, remember, flatulophilia is the love of foreplay farts. Yes, the love of foreplay farts. Agomatophilia is the fascination of entering the Statue of Liberty to see what's under her robe. Believe it or not, that's true. <laughs> Kleptolangnia is being turned on by stealing. That's our show. Thanks for listening, everybody. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. 